0: Weirdest thing that ever happened to me, though, I was writing a book that took place in Saratoga, New York, and I was up there doing some research. And there was a pivotal character I just could not fully get in my mind. And I was in a bookstore, the Northshire Bookstore in Saratoga, that I sometimes speak at, and I was just browsing around. And there was a woman right in the aisle, and I realized, oh my gosh, that's Sandra that is the person so I started following her a little bit and she looked at me a little bit like you know cool it <laughs> welcome to the friends and fiction writer's block podcast for New York Times best-selling authors one Rockstar Librarian and Endless Stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us.
1: And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Do you love a twisty psychological thriller? How about a book that keeps you on the edge of your seat? Stay tuned for this episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. We have a great guest for you. Kate White is here, and she is the New York Times bestselling author of 16 novels of suspense, eight standalone psychological thrillers, including The Second Husband, which is just out. And there's also eight Bailey Wiggins mysteries. For 14 years, Kate served as the editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan, which under her became the most successful magazine in single copy sales in the U.S. And I can't wait to talk to her about all of that. (laughs) Though she loved her magazine career, she decided to leave nine years ago to concentrate full-time on another passion, which was writing suspense fiction. And for readers, we're kind of glad she did. She's been nominated for many awards in her media career, including an International Thriller Writers Award, And her first mystery, If Looks Could Kill, was a Kelly Ripa book club pick and number one bestseller on Amazon. She has been published in countries around the world. Welcome to the podcast, Kate.
0: Oh, thank you, Ron. So great to be here.
1: I'm so excited to talk about this book, too, because I just finished it a few days ago and I was like, ah, it was loved it, but I have to just before we go out of the gate, I want to just give you kudos for your Real Housewives reference in the book. I just, it was such a great surprise, <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. and I'm such a fan to see this, especially oh, that particular one.
0: Yeah, the shows we love to hate, right?
1: <laughs> yes, yes, and don't miss a single episode. So <laughs> especially that one, that especially that one you referenced. So, but I won't give anything away. Hopefully, so anyway, if I wasn't a fan of yours already, that totally clinched it but let's start out by talking about the new book. Can you tell everybody what The Second Husband is about?
0: Sure. And by the way, Ron, it comes out June 28th. I wish it was coming out a little earlier in June, but you know, publishing sometimes has certain algorithms that authors (laughs) have difficulty figuring out. But Uh it's, it's the story of a woman named Emma Hawk, who is a trend forecaster and researcher and she's on her second marriage to this great guy named Tom and they're living in Westport and she gets a knock on the door one day and it is the police coming to open, reopen an investigation into the murder of her first husband. And that was only 26 months ago. So it's, she is a little bit vulnerable. It's like she remarried pretty quickly. They never found the killer. And so this whole thing throws her life into turmoil. And she starts asking a lot of questions. And I think the reader would ask a lot of questions too about, you know, who is Emma? Who is Tom? a new man she's married to and what you know what's really going on
1: yeah i i, I found myself questioning every page almost <laughs> going like thinking i had I, I had it all figured out i said oh well this i've got this figured out i might as well skip to the end but no i didn't there's so many surprises <laughs> and twists and turns it's just really well done and, and congratulations on it because
0: oh,
1: thanks, I, I can't imagine putting something like that together but i will talk about your process in a little bit where did the original idea for the book come from
0: do you know I was trying to think of it the other day because someone asked me, and there's a moment where I do know, and then as you start building, sometimes I lose the thread. Like I I think I started thinking about the idea of someone remarrying kind of quickly. And then I I do what so many authors do, you start playing with what if, you know, what if this happens, what if that happens. Sometimes I can remember the exact little kernel the idea started with, and it always, almost always starts with a kernel. Maybe it's a phrase I heard or a news headline, and then you do the what if. But once in a while, I can't even remember what was the moment where I said, hmm, what if this? And I'm, I'm not sure with this one. I think it was just the idea of what if you are in a new marriage and the other husband died, and now you can't lay that to rest as much as you want to.
1: Correct. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So uh, let's talk a little bit more about Emma. I I actually thought that the trend forecaster was something kind of new for me. Can you talk a little bit about uh, weaving that into the story, and and also about Emma, where she comes from, who she is?
0: Well, the the trend forecasting stuff was really interesting for me to include. In my series, the Bailey Wagon series series, Bailey is a true crime writer for magazines. And I had that long career you mentioned in magazines. And I actually had someone who worked for me at Cosmo who did our true crime pieces who could have been Bailey Wagons. And though she started after I started writing the books, but with the standalones, I've tried to give the main character a job that I'm fairly familiar with. So it has some verisimilitude because I once read a book about a an in chief and, and the author got it so wrong. I thought, I, I don't want to make that kind of mistake because I think it does help if you feel it's real. And when I ran Cosmo, I used trend forecasters. I used researchers and I did a lot of research myself. So I borrowed from that. And it's really kind of fascinating. Look, we know, Ron. No one can predict the future, but there are certain things that forecasters use. And one of my favorite that I that I mention in the book is something called the rule of three. Yes, and I found this so helpful for my personal life too. If uh, and Emma mentions the rule of three in the book yeah. to someone, it, it, if something happens once, chance. If it happens twice, it's um, curiosity, you know, kind of like, hmm, why did that happen again? Or maybe coincidence. But once something happens three times, a trend forecaster would say, I, I should pay attention to that. And in life, I think we should pay attention to <laughs> when things happen three times and what's it telling us. And, and it's, it really made me start being better about paying attention to little things that sometimes I, I'll just dismiss, yeah, and that's... In terms of Emma herself, I was interested in somebody who was a pretty together person and had married someone the first time. And you find this out pretty quickly that on paper, he seemed great. He was kind of the kind of guy she always thought she would marry. But once he switched jobs and started into a much high pressure job he turned into someone very moody and difficult, and and very unpleasant. And so it was like she she suddenly was married to someone she didn't know. And I, I actually dated somebody like that once. Who once he switched jobs and got into a high powered thing, he became like a maybe not a different person. Maybe he was already always that way, but it really triggered something very unlikable in him and so I, I, I borrowed that to use for her first husband and and so she she is not sor- sorry not to have him in her life. She feels bad that he died but she you know right away that she's had to kind of fake her grief.
1: Yes, yes, she has, and it's it's so real too. It's not you you know a lot of people might think it's best to paint a rosy picture, and and, uh, she's so great, but it adds a whole level of emotional upheaval to the book. I think that makes you kind of connect with Emma. So, uh, well done with that.
0: Yeah, I think that happens in life. You know, even with sometimes parents or siblings, where you feel very bad that their life is over. But maybe you weren't close to them. So in some ways it becomes almost harder to wrestle with because you've got the guilt of not feeling as bad as people think you do.
1: Right, right. And so you still try to hide it because you don't want people to know that about you. Right, right. So we've talked about Emma a little bit, but let's talk about some of the other characters. Do you have people that inspire you to create them or do they just kind of come into your mind when you sit down?
0: Sometimes I do. Like I'll see someone, I'll think that might be somebody interesting to to use at some point. Often it just comes to my mind, but then I have to get a visual image. And I'll start sometimes going online and looking at famous people and see if there's just something I can latch onto about the description of the person. There's a a big character actor who's red-haired that I use very much to help me get a sense of this one character in my, my mind. The weirdest thing that ever happened to me, though, I was writing a book that took place in Saratoga, New York, and I was up there doing some research, and there was a pivotal character I just could not fully get in my mind. And I was in a bookstore, the Northshire Bookstore in Saratoga that I sometimes speak at, and I was just browsing around, and there was a woman right in the aisle, and I realized, oh my gosh, that's Sandra. That is the person. Uh, So I started following her a little bit, and she looked at me a little bit like, you know, cool it, baby. I loved it. And so I kind of backed off, didn't want to be accused of being a stalker. But then I went out to dinner that night alone in a restaurant, since I was on my own doing the research, and she was sitting at the same bar. And so I surreptitiously took some pictures with my, my phone, but it was so helpful to have her literally come to life in front of my eyes. That was the, the weirdest thing that ever happened. I love
1: it. I love it. Love it. Love it. But that is doesn't obviously doesn't always happen for you.
0: No, though I will tell you this. Sometimes with people I really don't like, I find little ways to work them in indirectly. <laughs> <laughs> Not so they could sue, but maybe there's one little thing they're going to know that was me. <laughs>
1: yes. Yes. Well, do they? Does anyone ever like question if this is might be a little bit about them or?
0: A couple people have questioned because it's the same name, first name, but they've been totally wrong. I mean, it wouldn't be that obvious.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So how do you pull it all together? Because a book like this, it has so many layers and so many angles that somehow have to not only point to what's going to happen at the end, but also distract. So in my brain, it's like this, this big map of VR and that goes to all these different points on a bulletin yeah. board. But, but how do you pull this all together?
0: It feels like that sometimes. It's, as somebody once called it, it's kind of like spinning plates. One thing that's actually helped me, Not this isn't quite the question you asked, but it's, you talked about maybe confusing the reader and t- taking them off in the wrong direction. I read a couple books on magic when I first started. And that was very interesting because magicians use misdirection. And one of the things about them is they often have completed the trick almost before they seem to be doing the trick. So that helped. But I, I'm a what they call a plotter rather than a pantser. You've heard that term pantser. Oh
1: yes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I just refuse to be called a pantser just because it sounds so bad.
1: That's a (laughs) a (laughs) yucky term.
0: Wedgies on people. But I, I plot the book out. I always know. I plot it out broadly. I know who the killer is, why they killed and, just sort of what might be the main twist and then I plot out about four chapters at a time in a notebook and I try to lay down the red herrings and clues and I I know people write very successfully by being pantsers and doing it by the seat of their pants but I would find it very hard to lay down red herrings and clues if I didn't know where I was going even though I do know where I'm going sometimes then I have to go back and tweak a few things so they don't seem so obvious or maybe be fair enough with the reader to do a few more clues. If I feel I haven't given any at all.
1: Right. So have you ever had a time where you were moving along and all of a sudden something comes up into your brain that you go like, Oh wait, I have to go shift the direction of this now.
0: Not so much that off the top of my head, but I, but what will happen is something will come to mind about a character that I didn't know that I just remember there was one character all of a sudden I realized, Oh gosh, he's going to die. And I didn't know that I I really liked him. And other times it might be something will occur to me that I just suddenly think fire, there should be a fire. And those things happen. So part of the magic of writing writing, that I've talked to so many thriller authors about is that all the, as you're sitting there, your brain suddenly spills out information to you about things that should happen. And you think, where did that come from? It's magical. It's, it's so exhilarating when you all of a sudden have these things happen. And There was something in my last book, The Fiance, that was a variation on something that happened to a friend of mine professionally, just a moment where she was giving a little presentation. And all of a sudden I thought, oh, God, there's a way to do a variation of that in this book. Right as I'm sitting there, I hadn't even been thinking of the story she had told me years ago. And that makes it so much fun. So I would never want to plot it out so definitively that I wouldn't be able to allow for those fun moments.
1: Right. Right. I love that. I love that. It's such a, a fresh approach to it. What do you think is the draw for mystery and thriller writers towards death? Like it seems to be, no. <laughs> it's just a fascination, but with death, with readers too. I'll, I'll throw readers in there too, but.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I've heard certain people, authors and readers say, it's nice to have everything wrapped up and know that justice is done. And I'm sure that's part of it. But even as a kid, I was really kind of obsessed with the macabre. There was a story in the Daily News. I live in New York State. It grew up in New York State, not New York City, where I live now uh, much of the time, but upstate New York. But we got the Daily News and there was something called the Justice Story. And it was always about, you know, the crime of the week on Sunday and oh, I, I would read it and I, I would almost be nervous. Like if my parents caught me, they'd be like, What are you reading that for? It could because it would, could be so dark. And it's funny, one day I, I came downstairs and I saw my daughter watching the Ted Bundy interviews. And I was about to say, Honey, what are you doing? <laughs> I realized, well, the Apple doesn't fall, fall from the straight. In, in fact, one time I was I I'd give a dinner party for Thriller Fest. I didn't this year because of COVID where right. I invite some of my author pals for dinner during it. And one year it, Lee child was there and Karen slaughter and, and, and Joe Finder and people were talking about Ted Bunny and everybody was totally familiar with him. So it was sort of like, okay, this is a group that, that really finds death interesting and crime interesting. So, I guess it's I feel like I've always been fascinated by mystery and the unknown and why things might have happened the way they did.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's a general fascination with it, because I think the what is it like forensic files and things on television beyond books are just such magnets for people.
0: Yes. And I think we all or so many of us must have that because that would explain the shows and their popularity even when I was at Cosmopolitan we were known as the relationship bible and we had cover lines like mattress moves so hot as thighs go up in flames those sorts of things but you know what our readers favorite television show was somebody once told me I bet it's sex in the city no it was CSI <laughs> and yes, you know our, yes. our reader was eighteen to thirty five years old, but that was her favorite show when I was there. So that I guess that tells us something. It's it's in, it's in a lot of us that fascination.
1: It's a lot. I think uh, serial killers, mm-hmm. the whole thing. I mean, that's crazy.
0: Well, so, Ron, I, I have to tell you, I remember yes. when I was at Cosmo. You know, we did a lot of stories about protecting yourself against crime, and I remember there was one moment where it said that a woman is most likely. To be killed by a serial killer between like fifteen and like forty six, I was like, "I'm out of the zone! Yay!
1: <laughs> i was <a>
0: <laughs> in that zone.
1: I'm free." Hey, yeah, <laughs> That's awesome. So let's talk about Cosmo. What What was it like to work there, and, and what were some of the the highlights of your career with them?
0: It was. The most magical experience in those days, not anymore. Magazines have really declined, and that's part of what what was part of my decision to leave. As much as I love my company and my job, I could see that it was happening. New generations, new ways of getting their information, like we're doing right now. But during the heyday, we had over three million readers, a fair percent, and that's just who bought it. We had a huge pass along, too the staff was very diverse. It was so much fun. People who work there tend to be people who were a little bit out there because Cosmo was kind of an out there magazine. Yes, it was. Every day was like being on a television show, and I I loved it. I lo- I'm still very close to a number of people who work for me, and I, I see them regularly, and it, it was really fun. And it's it's too bad that as magazines have disappeared and are are disappearing that there might be young people who never un- can have the chance of working for one and seeing just how much fun it was.
1: Right, right, right. It's it's certainly a more of a cutthroat thing and I I just working in the library we 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 carry all kinds of magazines, but I, I get sad because so many are ceasing publication, at least oh. in physical. And there's something about. Flipping through the pages. And I just a quick aside when I worked in a library early on, we used to carry Cosmopolitan, but we had to hide it behind the desk. And people would have to come up and leave their library card because it was one of the <laughs> things that people wanted more than anything. And it would just walk out the door.
0: Yeah, we were the most stolen magazine in doctor's offices. One of <laughs> my favorite moments there was I got a call. Pharrell Williams had written a a song using Cosmo cover lines and he wanted to come by and bring a singer to perform it. And he said, I'll bring the booze. I thought that was a, that was a Cosmo day. <laughs>
1: that is a Cosmo day. <laughs> and a great example of how you feel like you're in a TV show. Yeah, it really, it was so much fun. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Now, do you think a lot of that now you also, before I go there, you also write some wonderful career advice books for people. Can you talk just for a second about that?
0: I love doing that too. One of the things I found interesting is, I I, I was the editor in chief of a magazine called Working Woman that was really about career advice, and I often found that sometimes even the most talented, successful person sometimes had a hard time explaining strategy like if you if you want this you should do that and for whatever reason i felt pretty good at that and i I wrote a book back in the 90s called why good girls don't get ahead but gutsy girls do that was very pivotal then and uh big big success and then i i wrote another book which i think probably still holds up called i shouldn't be telling you this uh with great career advice and i and i would speak out at all sorts of places conferences and organizations on it. But what happens is the farther you get from being in the corporate world, the less you know that's really going on there. So a few years ago, I just said that that's not going to be an area that I that I stay into anymore. But, Ron, I still, if a friend asked, hey, my daughter could use some career advice, yeah. I am more than happy to help. Because certain things, Like the certain things just always apply. Like, like one of the great little pieces of information I I, I, I've always felt is that sometimes people on a job interview try to keep cool as a cucumber. But really what you're, the other person is looking for is just over-the-top enthusiasm. Don't be afraid to say, gosh, I would love to work here. Right. In fact, our talent head of talent acquisition at Hearst once told me the best people were the ones that never sat all the way back on the seat. They're the ones who sat on the edge of the seat because they were dying for the job. So some old things still
1: apply. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that transcends like format and and, uh, location. That's a great piece of advice.
0: Yeah. And asking for what you want. I know women today are encouraged to do that more, but Mm -hmm. it's still so important when you're negotiating or you're you're being offered a a starting salary. It is absolutely fine to say, well, I'm thrilled to be offered This job, I love the sound of working here and for you, but I was hoping for this amount. They expect you to negotiate, and you should.
1: And you should. That's where that trend forecasting kind of comes in. You can kind of see what what the going salaries are in your chosen profession.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Check it out. Do your research.
1: Definitely, definitely. So let's shift a little bit here. Talk about what some of the early books in your life that were favorites. I know your mom was a librarian, so you Um, had to have such an influence there.
0: Yeah. Well, certainly, I think the first book she ever brought me when she was getting her master's in library science was A Wrinkle in Time. And I I just thought I'd died and gone to heaven reading that book. Yes, yes, yes.
1: um,
0: And then I would say, gosh, Nancy Drew. Nancy Drew, you know, for baby boomers like me, there were so few role models for us Mm. in in life in general then, but also in books because so often the woman had to play a certain role and Nancy was gutsy. She was a detective and she could care less about that Ned Nickerson. Uh, She had (laughs) better things to do. I mean, she liked him, but he had to take a back seat to uh, some of her other pursuits. So that really influenced it. And for a while, I wanted to be a detective and I would I got a little navy trench coat when I was like 12 and I would carry a little pistol toy water a water pistol in my pocket and and pretend to be a little detective around my town and then finally I realized you no know, I'm too much of a wimp I would never ever want to be a detective and I realized maybe what it means is I want to write mysteries And then when I was in college, Esquire Magazine ran a great story, a a, a big section called Things Every Young Man Should Know. And one of them, a little box, was the 10 best mysteries of all time. And and so even though I wasn't a young man, they were things like... The Big Sleep, The Maltese Falcon, mm-hmm. it books by Nero Wolf and J- 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 Josephine Tay. So I just went through the list because up until that point, I'd really just read Nancy Drew. And then I was introduced to all sorts of books and various genres, you know, legal thrillers as, and, and and hard-boiled detective. And that's when I realized, gosh, I love anything to do that, that's a thriller, mystery all that stuff.
1: Yeah. Got under your skin. Yeah. Totally.
0: But I also love literary fiction. I read a lot of it and I read history too, because there's a lot of mystery in, in, in all of those as well.
1: That's so true, so true. A lot of the, the nonfiction it really do read like a mystery because you're you're along a path to find out the why. Right, right. So do you have recent books that you can talk about that you've loved that you might recommend?
0: Sure. I absolutely loved, in terms of mysteries, Gene Carlitsch's The Plot. Yes. I that was out of this world. I'm with you. Because lately I've had trouble with some thrillers where the need to, the twist has to be, so, you know, it's got to be twisty, that they sort of, you know, jump the shark for me. Um, sure. I also love the book. We were never here. Uh, the mystery in terms of literary fiction. I, I just read the, the book separate a separation by the author who also wrote, gosh, I'm blanking on her name right now, but it's a beautiful book. And she, there's a, a mystery at the heart of it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I just read a bio on Washington because I'm a big Civil War buff, so I felt like better get to know something about the Revolution. And I just I took a Yale Open course during the pandemic on the Civil War, and I've just ordered, I downloaded Rob, uh, Robert Blight, who taught the course, his his biography of Frederick Douglass, which I can't wait to read. And then I read a book lately that I love called deep work about the importance of us just removing ourselves from all the distractions. This is more of a service. Uh, Very helpful.
1: I'm writing that one down.
0: Yeah. So good. And one of my favorite novels of the last couple of years was asymmetry, which I thought was just brilliant. Mm -hmm. And so I, what I try to do on my Kindle is I have four books going at the same time. I've got the, (laughs) The nonfiction, and that's more of like a memoir or or like historical. I don't know if this is count, counts, but I'm halfway through Tina Brown's The Palace Papers, which is delicious. Yes. Then I'll have a mystery. And right now I'm reading Insomnia as my mystery. And I'll have a history. Well, I said the history book, but I'm reading the history of Watergate And in terms of a literary thriller, since I just finished A Separation, I don't have a new one yet. Oh, well, you know, I have Gene Corlitz's. The new one, Uh, yes. Yes, which, you know, the good news is, the the bad news is it's not a thriller like the plot. The good news is a it's a gripping family drama called The Late Comer.
1: It's on my nightstand.
0: Oh, really? It is so winning. And I, I can't believe Gene she, she's a pal of mine. She probably want, you know, I'm probably not in her league, but
1: she is. I'm sure. That's true.
0: The yeah. So uh, that's my MO always four at the same time. And then I kind of just moved from one to the next.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we had Jean here as a guest when the plot first came out and, Oh, it was, it was so fascinating to hear about how it all came together. And it's oh. been on my list to encourage everybody to read it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I just thought it was delicious and so well-written.
1: Yep. Yep. She's certainly a talent. And I, I like, she goes for different genres too. Like each one is so different. And,
0: right. And, and this yeah. one is very different, but it's still very good. And there's some mystery to it too. A, a lot of really great literary fiction, as I said, like Julian Barnes, sense of an ending. You're, you're mm. spending the whole book sort of wondering why, why, why,
1: Yes. What's going on? Wow. This is awesome. So what's next for you?
0: Well, I'm starting the tour for the second husband and I'm, I'm looking forward to that because Ron, it's now virtual t- too, but also in person. It's going to be great to be out on the road talking about the book with, pe- with people. One of the things that makes what I do so pleasurable is that readers are wonderfully responsive. They, they reach out to me on, on Facebook and, and Instagram, and it's just so great to hear from them. And, but I love meeting them in person. So yes. I'll do the second husband tour. I just handed in the 2023 book. Oh, which, which my editor seems to be happy with. I'm going to have to, you know, do a little bit of work on it, which is always the case. That's why you have editors. Right. And then at the same time, I've got to start the one for 2024, which so this is always the weirdest period for me. It's sort of the perfect storm because I, I need to be thinking about the next book before I start writing it because I need more than a year to write it. Oh, I need sure. a few months of thinking about it. So I'm still, I'm thinking about the new one while I'm finishing the next one. And that's crazy.
1: And then planning for tour on top of all that. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. People think it's such a glamorous life, but boy, what I've heard is it's, it's, um, it's, it's a love that everybody has to meet their readers, but it's a lot of work that goes into all of this.
0: To me, the only work is when you fly someplace and the plane is late or there's no plane going home. Oof. The actual yeah. experience of being in a library or bookstore, I find it ex- exhilarating. I really do. To, to meet readers and, and people who take the time to come out and say hi to you, that, that's so gratifying. And, and you know, for me, too, I think this is The Second Husband is the fourth book I've done that has marriage in as a center for piece of it. And so that'll be interesting to talk a little bit about too, because marriage is a place where you can bring in all sorts of mystery and suspense.
1: Oh, trail. It's an endless minefield. Yeah. It's an endless minefield. So where can readers connect best with you?
0: I would say some research supports that, that mystery and thriller authors Readers, as popular as Instagram is today, and I'm generally post posts on Instagram every day, where they really connect is on Facebook, and they'll take the time to, if you've shared a recipe, they might share one back, or if you, I recommend a lot of shows and books on my Facebook account, and they will tell you, you know, thanks so much. I, I, I hadn't heard of that, but I watched it because of you and. And then they tell me some that I don't know about. And I love that.
1: Right. Right. That's awesome. And then you also have a a phenomenal website that talks about all of your books and all of your tour information. And um, I think you have blog posts on there, too. And so it's just very well-rounded and it represents you very well.
0: Can I just say I work for the Hearst Corporation for two magazines, including Cosmo and One day when I realized I needed to get my own URL, I thought, boy, I'm sure Kate White is taken. But Hurst had taken it for me years before, early on. So my website is katewhite.com. And how lucky is
1: that, right? You are very lucky. There's a lot of uh, people that uh, go on there and like, why does somebody have my name? (laughs) Kate, thank you so much for joining us. We can't wait for readers to get their hands on The Second Husband.
0: Oh, Ron, thanks so much. It was such a pleasure, and I I so appreciate all you do for authors.
1: Thank you. Oh, my God. It's it's absolutely my pleasure. And like writing, I think it's a labor of love.
0: Good. Well, we're both in our labors of love. Yes, we are. (laughs) Yes,
1: we are. Yes. Yes. And thank you all once again for tuning in. We hope that you enjoy these peeks into storytelling and writers and that you'll share this with a friend. See you next week.